Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 157 with my guest, Robert Van Sice, and uh, one of the members of So, Eric Cha Beach. Uh, we've been doing is I've been doing a series of these podcasts with my friends from So, with our teachers from our undergrads and our graduate studies. Um, we did one with Mike Rosen, John Beck, Dr. Larry Snyder, and now finally uh, Robert Van Sice, all of a, who who is the, teach, the teacher, excuse me, that we all had in common at Yale University. Um, Bob's had a huge impact on our lives in terms of the way we teach, but also in the way that we play chamber music and teach and talk about chamber music. And so I really wanted to talk with him and Eric about sort of what his thoughts were as his career progressed behind teaching chamber music and amongst other things. So hope you enjoyed this conversation. This is Robert Van Sice. Talk to you soon. Bye. Let's let's gavel this to order. Robert Van Sice, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Um, and and Eric Chubbich is is with me. We have been, you know, we spoke a little bit as this podcast was as before we spoke or before we started, and we were sort of connecting some dots between um, ourselves and just sort of Yale alums. But um, we've been doing it with uh, our individual professors as well. We, uh, Jason and I sat in on one with Larry Snyder. Um, we did one with John Beck from Eastman, and we did one with Mike Rosen from Oberlin. And just as a way to sort of further connect our dots individually, uh, not just from your influence on So, but then what what Larry sort of added to So, and what Michael Rosen and John Beck. But um, and again, we're not going to cover your entire life or everything that you've done in an hour, an hour and a half. But I want to sort of th- hit some big things. One is to sort of help students understand a little bit of your lineage from when you first started teaching, like when you left studying for, with Mike Rosen and went on, what landed you in Rotterdam and then back at Yale, um, and sort of hitting on some big points. You have you in particular had to have, have had a huge influence on the repertoire and performance of marimba playing, um, education in general being sort of like the methodology of teaching, but then also in particular chamber music. Um, and I think that's sort of the final thing I want to hit on because that's what's so, that's sort of what, why we are what we are, the way we talk about how kids should cue each other and all of that stuff. Um, so all of that prompt said, and also I want to sort of toss in here, Tony the Pony is something <laughs> that we all know and we'll eventually get to. And I want to say I'm disappointed you're not wearing your shirt that I made for you and paid for, Bob, when I was Okay, just student. so you know, the Tony the Pony shirt <laughs> does reside actually in a permanent installation on the wall of the new fancy Yale Percussion Group studio, Josh. So not only I still have it, it was put up on the wall as a permanent installation right next to my desk. It's uh, sort of bittersweet. I I found that thing the day that we knew that we lost Jamie and I wanted to have something of him near me. So we found the old Tony the Pony t-shirt and he resides right next to right next to the desk. Now I'm sure everyone who's listening has absolutely no idea. I'm supposed to act all Ivy League and intellectual, and actually studying with the Bob includes something called Tony well, the Pony. <laughs> I, I bring it up. I bring it up on purpose in jest a little. Well, first of all, I'm going to try to choke back a little bit of tears in reference to Jamie here, but. Um, I bring it up sort of in jest, but sort of being 100% serious in that it is a joke about something that I think is a foundational premise upon which you teach, which is like, if you can't do the simple thing, which is like hit a timpani drum with a good sound, it doesn't matter. Takamitsu does not going to matter. So, 
for you, I kind of want to get to that. So can you start a little bit with like Bob Van Syce, the student? What were you like thinking? What was your worldview? And Eric, you know Bob more than I do. So I want you to sort of have the mic here and chime in and interrupt and ask questions that I just frankly would never even think to ask. So all that said, Bob Van Syce, the floor is yours. Um, let's see. I'll do this as quickly as possible and as short as sort of as, as able to do I grew up in the family of musicians. My mom had gone to conservatory as a singer and was uh, uh, a great church choir singer in the end. My father was a professional French horn player. And so I grew up as an Air Force brat. My father was uh, a musician in the military. And so that's what took us to San Antonio, Texas. I was actually born in Colorado Springs when my dad was there for the opening of the Air Force Academy, which is a magnificently beautiful place if none of you have ever seen that. Um, I also have laid both my parents to rest in that beautiful place. And so I was, I was born when my dad was there. We spent a little stint in Germany, as very commonly was the case during that time with military families. And, but I was really raised, Josh, in San Antonio in Texas. And my dad came back and was stationed at Lackland Air Force Base. Um, my training started with a young man named Scott Bruce, who was in the, in the uh, band with my father. And I got a marvelous foundational start from him, just a marvelous foundational start from him. And I left high school very, very early. I I kind of got into high school. I was dying to go to conservatory since I was a 10-year-old kid and, you know, see what this magical thing, the East Coast was all about and all these great orchestras and all this great music making. So when they gave the first uh, lecture as to how many credits you needed to graduate from high school, I sat there listening to this lady who was the counselor in my homeroom going, well, if I actually sort of took two more of those and if I did in the summer and I tried to pass out of this, I'd get out of here in two years. <laughs> so I, I did this crazy sort of hyper warp speed high school so I could go off to conservatory. Well, the only deal was, Josh, is that my dad said, uh, New York City, Juilliard, uh, I don't think so. And <laughs> going to Cleveland or Boston, I don't think so. And then there was Michael Rosen in this nice, quiet, safe little town in, in Ohio and he was an A quadruple plus pedagogue. And so, perfect. And so my dad said, okay, I'm comfortable with that. So off I went very young to college. The anecdote I always tell the people is I was amazed the first week I was there that there were guys in, in the bathroom at my dorm shaving in the morning. That was like something my dad did. This was really like mind blowing to me. <laughs> and uh, so I had a magnificent year with, with Mike. And I was taking private lessons, and you guys both know that I have always had this duality of loves between the orchestral canon and and timpani as an instrument and the marimba, that I sort of unashamedly was always in love with both of these things. And, and so I was going into Cleveland because Cloyd Duff was there, and I was taking private lessons there. And that, that was at the moment where Cloyd and Maggie kind of had decided where the finish line was going to be on his career, and that they were going to retire in three years or whatever it was. And, and Cloyd said, listen, you know, I, if, if you want to come study with me and I'd be very happy to keep teaching you, you're going to actually need to come over here and go to school at the Institute. I'm not going to have any more private students. And so I transferred to CIM at the beginning of my sophomore year and then went back to Oberlin to take lessons as often as I was able with Mike Rosen. So, I mean, my progression education was literally as spoiled as you can get. I, in high school, there was a man who is unfortunately recently deceased named Dean Witten, who was a young man fresh out of Eastman who had come to play in the San Antonio Symphony. Um, 
that there aren't superlatives enough for how great of a teacher Dean Witten was completely, you know, Josh, that say that a teacher changed my life. You know, how many times have we ever heard that? One? And, and usually it's exaggerated. Dean Witten changed my life in the literal sense of hmm. uh, we went from you seem to play percussion pretty darn decently, kid, to if you really want to play percussion for real, here's how it goes. And so I had just this magnificent time with him. And he was also, as I look back on my career, and I, I told in fact, I remember and his son, who is now a professional percussionist, you, you may know his son, Matt, is, was literally born. I mean, he was that big in a bassinet in the next room when I was taking lessons. And, and, I, and I told Matt after his father's passing, that had so much to do with me somehow subliminally deciding to want to teach as well as play. Just because I could see in front of my own eyes this incredible change in my playing, in my persona, in my thought process, in my everything. And it was all coming out of, you know, every Thursday or whatever it was when I would have my dad drive me over to Dean Witten's house for my lesson. And I think that the sort of very first germination, the very first seed of loving pedagogy came without even recognizing it from my great lessons in high school with Dean Witten. Can I, I, and, I don't, I don't, sorry to interrupt you, Bob, but I want to ask you a question about that. Can you tell me, is, do you remember something specific that he said? I mean, I, I think of things that Larry said to me. Sure. Um, I think of things that you said to us in a chamber coaching. That's like, you maybe said it the same way 14 other times. And then the 15th <laughs> way was like, boop, sure. that was the key. Like, what was it that he said to you that was like, Oh, like that you had those couple. Moments. I remember a sentence of Dean's very well, even to this day, a, a thousand years later, is when something would go wrong in my playing, he would just say, You're not listening hard enough. And and the idea that the truth is in the sound, this thing that you know they'll chisel onto my tombstone, right? Is I think that I think the first time I heard something, Josh, that really amounted to the truth is only in the sound came from Dean Witten telling me, you're just not listening to yourself close enough. And that one, no matter how much one is taught for, you know, we'll do the definition of that word maybe later, but you are the responsible for your own journey as a musician, as a person, as in everything. And, and, and people Sherpa you through that journey. And sometimes you get good Sherpas and sometimes you don't necessarily get great Sherpas but that you're responsible for what's going to come out of your hands. <clears throat> that, that started with Dean Witten. And he was also kind enough to advocate for me when I was looking to go to school and everybody's looking at my dossier and said, you know, we're not taking some, some kid who's not old enough to be out of junior high school into a conservatory. And Dean Witten got on the phone to Mike Rosen and lobbied on my behalf for which I'm grateful until today. And and then, I mean, I think, Josh, it'd be impossible for me to tell you in a year's time that I was with Mike Rosen, what I learned from Mike Rosen. I mean, it, the list would be as long as my leg. Mm-hmm. And I was also too young and too stupid to, to know what half of that actually was. And so, so many things that I think that we learn from one another, whether we're learning, whether you guys learn from the other three of your colleagues in a soul rehearsal or you learn in a formal setting with a teacher, it happens kind of by osmosis. That, that these things just, that there aren't so many, I mean, sort of epiphany moments and epiphany statements, those make really great stories, mm-hmm. but, but the true learning seeps into you and your pores 
minute by minute as you're studying with somebody. And so what did I learn from Mike Rosen? <laughs> I got asked that question in an interview once. Everything. <laughs> I think Adam, Adam Salinsky would probably say something very I mean, similar. That, everything. And then when I went to study with Cloyd, I just did an interview about Cloyd by, of a man who's writing a book about Cloyd three days ago. Um, I think I, I, first of all, I learned from Cloyd Duff sitting in Severance Hall, just it goes like this. And just simply, if the man and I never met for a lesson <laughs> once a week, it wouldn't have made a whole lot of difference. It was how to play the timpani phenomenally well twice a week sitting in the balcony of Severance Hall. Can I, can I ask you like that? That's a, that's to me. I remember having some pivotal moments like that as a student. And Eric, if you sit here and nod like that the whole time, I'm going to be really mad at you. Um, <laughs> be a human and open your mouth. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, sitting, I, I think as there's, there's the moment I think as a student where you realize that you don't play the same way in the practice room as you do on stage yeah. or, mm -hmm. or that those are two different possibilities. Like you can't just walk on stage and expect what you've done in a small brick room to, to translate. And you hear Cloyd Duff or you hear, you know, I heard you play live or I, first time I played was so, you know, um, and yeah. you're like, Oh my God, that's how you hit that wood slat. Like, not that I never had that sound at Yale, but when you're standing on a concert stage, it's just a different thing. And for you, like, how was that with Cloyd? Was, did he ever address the, like, uh, that moment? What was that aha moment for you? Like, where you're like, oh, wow, he, he plays differently out there. And I have to, I have to deal with that somehow. Well, I, Cloyd was way more of a guide than a teacher. Okay. It, it was, it was somebody who our lessons with him, Josh, were very simple. We played top left to bottom right of a symphony in a lesson. And so we're playing Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony this week. There's the first note. And then you finish with the final cadence and he just kind of walk you through. And, and so there weren't enormous deep dives into either thought processes or ideas or concepts. And once in a, once in a while, you could talk him into the Cloyd, you just grab my sticks and can you play that for me? And then sometimes he'd just stand up from his chair where he used to sit and conduct with a music stand in front of the timpani. That's how all our lessons took place. And he'd just stand up and play on the wrong side of the drum and play a couple of rhythms and whatever. But I just always remember not just that there was more sound than any of us were making, which is what you're talking about, that professional sound that fills the concert hall, but... I know this sounds all artsy. You could feel the sincerity of his sound when he touched the drum in front of you. Of, there was a difference between the way this man contacted a drum and the way I did. I knew a, I knew a timpani at that age. He was married to one. And it, it was just a completely different thing. And, and so then you would sit in Severance Hall and you would feel the sound in your feet or you could feel it in your chest. Mm -hmm. And those are all the things that I talk about with my students all the time is that you can't live too much of your student life in a practice room because that's preparing for a profession that doesn't exist. There, there are no professional practice room players and that music is played in a concert hall. And I, one of the great experiences I had at Yale was during the time that Feeney was there. Okay. I mean, and as we're going to go through all these stories, all these people, can you imagine how lucky I've been? All these unbelievable people. When we look back over there, that I've had the privilege of being in a room and, and making music with. But we were—that was a time, Josh, when 
when Marty Bresnik wrote Grace for me, the double marimba concerto. And when we were getting ready for the first rehearsal, it was Eduardo who was going to come play that concert with me, but Eduardo couldn't come to all the rehearsals. So what we did was in the first rehearsals, I had all my students learn a certain chunk of grace. Mm -hmm. And so they would play, you know, five letters. And then like another guy would come in and play yeah. five letters through the rehearsal. And, and Tim came rushing up at the end, all Tim Feeney like, you know, and so said, how do you make that sound? I said, which one, Tim? <laughs> I mean, I just sort of didn't understand. I didn't understand the question. Well, how do you make that sound? It's like, I've been sitting out there as we're rotating. That sounds like four times bigger than every single one of us who's playing. So how do you do that? And you know what the real magic is? It's total magic, Josh. I had played way more concerts than they had ever played. Uh, yeah, that's, exactly how, that's exactly how amazing it is. It's nothing more than that. And the number of times I have said to you guys, and all of you roll your eyes in exactly the same way over three decades of people rolling their eyes at me. I've, sometimes the answer to a question pedagogically is, guys, when you're my age or when you've played a couple hundred concerts, it'll sound that good. And in fact, it'll probably sound better. And then you guys all look at me in a studio like that's a total nonsense answer. That's a complete cop out of how that sounds like that. And mine doesn't sound like But, you know, the older I get, Josh, the less I'm a fan of this sort of magic mystery, the sorcerer, ultra genius, all-knowing professor. Yeah. The, 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 I, French, the French have a great saying that is, I saw the sun a little bit before you did. And in so many cases, guiding somebody through life or guiding through somebody through becoming a musician isn't a whole lot more than that. I saw the sun a little bit before you did. And how do I know how to make a bigger sound than Tim Feeney does when he's 21 years old? Well, because I had to fill up a concert hall about a thousand times more before when Tim Feeney was 21 years old. I, I don't want to have a fair fight with Tim Feeney now on stage. He probably would s smoke me so bad. Everybody would make fun of me. I think right? there's, there's something, there's one thing I remember you that you said to me in a lesson and, and it was along those lines and it really has stuck with me. And I think Eric could, I've said this in master classes, like the only difference between me and you is that I know what I'm about to sound like crap. <laughs> you don't. And like, that's like, you know what you're going to sound like. And when I see Jason, it's like, and now in, in so percussion, it's like, I know when a downbeat is not going to be together. And I know when one's going to be together. Yeah, and I know yeah. like, those are just like, I, that's, that's the thing in coaching chamber music. I feel like it's like, fellas, fellas like you just got to just play third construction 40 more times. And like, that's, and Josh, that's what you, know you need what, now. Like now that you guys play a repertoire for a long period of time. It's also an unfair balancing when a student is in incredible admiration of their teacher sounding so much better. And that when you're a student, you get to play every single piece once. <laughs> you learn a piece, yeah. you have a performance, move on to the next one. And and somebody says to me, Jimus Ravens, your time for marimba sounds better than mine. God, I would hope so. I mean, <laughs> is, is that, you know, I, after 80 performances of a piece, and you guys know that from playing Third Construction or Threads or whatever that, you know, the greatest hits from you guys, is things just sound better after you played them five times. And after you played them 20 times, they sound a lot better. And when you play them 50 times, it's almost automatic. And I, I always tell my students, have courage. What you just played for your dances of earth and fire sounds so much better than my first performance of that piece. It's not even close. So what's coming is all the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Eric, you're unmuted here, buddy. So that gives me hope. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bob, we talk about that with our, 
uh, when we're doing master classes all the time, we we call it we have more at bats, you know, like, uh, um, and I feel like that's so so true that it's not a magical alchemy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that leads me to one of the things I was thinking about before this podcast was, um, you know, when when we do classes with so we tell our own stories a lot to students and. Um, I think we've all realized over time that we have, each of us has some element of that. Um, you know, the book outliers, um, the whole 10,000 hours thing. And each of us has something, you know, Josh went to a high school in the middle of Ohio that happened to have a steel band. Uh, Jason, you know, Steve Gatt happened to be at Eastman while he was a student there. Or, you know, I think for me, my outliers thing was at Peabody, literally that I went to Peabody as a double major thinking that I really wanted to study recording. And, you know, I remember walking into, um, I think at the time they just called it the new building or whatever. Everybody had dragged the VB set up down there. And for folks who have no idea the the inside baseball language, VB means village burial and it should be (laughs) VBWF. It's village burial with fire, Eric. Thank you. Go on. Well, so, so, you know, like it was the first time in my life that I literally couldn't follow a score. Um, and, and, but you know, just like the, those guys had been rehearsing all summer together and it was sort of each of us has a moment in our lives where we were um, exposed to something, you know, like Bill Gates being around one of the earliest computers or, the, you know, the Beatles having the, their residency in Germany. Like the, these moments that gave us an opportunity to become invested in something really deeply. And I was realizing, preparing for this, that I know your story, you know, I know um, how you got to studying with Cloyd Duff. Um, getting to Cape Town after that. But I've always wondered, what exactly would you identify as that, if if you could identify an outliers moment like that for yourself, that took you specifically into the the chamber music and marimba solo repertoire? Because I kind of feel like I know the story of how you became this amazing timpanist. And then you went off and you were in South Africa, you were in Europe, and then you came back and you're like this amazing soloist and chamber musician who completely changes the way all that stuff is happening. In you had your, you had your marimba rumspring, Bob. Like you, you, you yeah, disappeared like, off the grid for two years and came back. <laughs> Let me tell you where my marimba thing happened. I was a little kid and saw Keiko Abe play at a PASIC when I was junior high school, high school age. Mrs. Abe then came back you know, Mickey Rosen is the guy who's responsible for Keiko's fame in North America. You know, he was the first, first person. There's a little tiny recital hall at Oberlin, guys. I don't, I mean, I haven't been in that building forever, and I don't know if it's renovated or is still there. But inside the front door, the very first thing you get to is a little tiny recital hall must hold 150 people. And I remember going to a recital of Mrs. Abe's in there in my ripe old age of 16 or whatever. I I had never seen anything like that in my life. I had never imagined something like that in my life. And it was not very far one from another from the experience that I had seeing Mike Udow come play with his wife dancing. Now, and I mean, remember, I, I, I was raised in San Antonio, Texas as an Air Force brat. Mike Udall coming and playing totally flipped out music and his wife is dancing at the same time. This is from Saturn for me, right? Keiko Abe with her giant five octave marimba making all that sound, playing true to life art music, watching percussion playing as art, not just as craft, but as art. You know, Eric, when when you hear this, this old adage of I was left speechless, pal, 
I literally didn't know what to say. Just that exists. And this was a major epiphany. And I had always loved playing the marimba. I spent an awful lot of time playing the marimba from the time I was a little kid. My father was kind enough to buy me a little tiny premier marimba. I think you guys don't even know the premier drum company in England ever made marimbas. But I was, you know, how, how spoiled is that? I'm a junior high school kid and there's a little marimba at that time that was unheard of in, in my bedroom where I could practice. So knowing and loving and, and delving into the repertoire I had always done, I hate to disappoint everybody because I'm constantly pushing people to make sure that they have a career path and all the things you guys went through in your seminars at Yale and form yourself as a pro. But I had I, nothing of that when I was a kid. I was just fascinated by great players and great music. And, and so I adored everything I heard in Severance Hall. I loved Keiko Abe and, and I practically wore out all those Japanese marimba records of hers. I, when I wanted to find that music, I wrote a letter to the Japanese embassy in New York and the, the, the cultural attache, who is Minoru Miki, who is Yasuzio. Remember, it, was, it wasn't on my phone at that point, you know. And I, and I remember, Eric, that information coming back in a manila envelope and guarding it like this. I mean, it was so precious of this information of who this was and what this was. And But I could also be just as happy, Eric, still in Cape Town if things hadn't gone as they did in, in Cape Town and things hadn't changed. I played in this really wonderful orchestra that sounded about, oh, I don't know, the level of Houston Symphony or Detroit Symphony with a bunch of really terrific players in a beautiful place that looked like San Francisco. I married this woman I was crazy about and her parents were a two hour flight away. And I was playing marimba recitals everywhere. We're all good. Unfortunately, there was a dark side of all of that that was too dark for me to be able to deal with in the fact that Nelson Mandela was being held as a prisoner any number of miles away from my house. But I never really started this, Eric, with a plan. It kind of just happened. And this is why I always tell my students that fame is a misnomer. It's, it's a myth. It's a smoke and mirrors thing because any number of people play unbelievably better than I do, have worked just as hard as I do. Now we can do the whole list of the meritocracy part of this. A huge portion of anybody, and I think anyone you ask this, whether you ask it to Bob Becker or, or you know, Adama Drama or, or Zakir Hussein or Cloyd Duff, a huge amount of success in a career is luck. And then how well you play your hand if life deals you a bit of luck. Then I think that's where, that's where things change for different people. But if you take yourself too seriously, that means that you're just simply taking the element of luck out of, out of the equation, and then it's just really dangerous. What? And then, then you believe you're either as good as the music that you play or somehow more important, and then, and then everything's lost at that point. One thing Eric, Eric mentioned, um, he mentioned your, your, you know, your move to Cape Town, and I, it, it's in, I, I'm really gl glad you asked the question, Eric. I'm never, I'm, I always afterwards, I'm like, why do I make fun of Eric so much? He's always so smart. But now why do you make fun of Eric? Could, could you guys quit making fun just, of Eric? It was how it started. We started that way at Yale, and I'm not going to break anything. I'm not going <laughs> to fix anything if it ain't broke, you know. But um, 
but it but I do like you sort of you sort of you hitched your sort of tie line to the marimba guardrail and were like okay this is something I want to do and it and it sort of guided you to to Cape Town and I feel like that's where like your intersection with how you started to develop marimba repertoire your work with Peter Klatzow can you talk about that for a little bit and sort of then how that jumped you to um, I believe it was at Rotterdam was your next stop right, after that. Well- Exactly. Well, I had just gotten done with my studies in Asia. I just had my time studying with Mrs. Abe in Japan. I came back to the States to seek my fortune and go become a famous whatever. <laughs> and then I get a call really early in the morning from somebody I'd gone to college with, who had been at CIM with me, was a viola player, Josh, and a, and a conductor. And Ted called and said, listen, I, I play in the Cape Town Symphony now in South Africa, and our timpanist is leaving. We're in the search for a timpanist. Would you like to throw your had into the ring and you know and, and a lot of my response was you know with the idiotic response of a 20 year old or whatever the heck i was of a no you don't seem to get it i'm going to be moving to new york and becoming this really famous blah 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 and he said well listen if you know if you need to get a couple hours more sleep and a cup of coffee and get over yourself or whatever you need to do here could you please think about this because i play in this really a plus orchestra in this beautiful place and if you send us a tape we may think about giving you a job so anyway Long story short, I I was fortunate enough that they decided to employ me. Off I go to Cape Town. And I go to Cape Town to play principal timpani in a very fine orchestra. I get there and I'm really amazed. Um, Ted had not oversold the thing at all, Josh. The orchestra sounded great. The place was beautiful. It was marvelous. The the feelings of apartheid were much more sort of located in other parts of South Africa. You felt it was much more of an English-speaking community down in the South, and this was like, oh, my gosh, I think I just won the lottery. And then Ted takes me by UCT, the University of Cape Town, and says, I teach over here a little bit. And some of us in the orchestra, do you want to, like, teach lessons, too, while you're here? And I went, you guys have a music school here, too? And he said, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if they got a percussion teacher or anything you want to ask. I end up getting a job at UCT on the side to do some teaching. And then I asked, are there, are there really good com- – I just had my time with Ms. Are there any really fine composers in South Africa? You know, I, I didn't have any idea. And they said, yeah, there's this Nadia Boulanger, super genius sex student who runs the composition I love department. that, like, just for the record, like, it, while you're at, what, the, the way to Google things, like, it, in that time, people were, instead of saying Google it, it was like, ask that guy. Like, that's as good as you had, you know? effective manner of Googling something. Very Maybe effective. Ask somebody, have a conversation. And... And Peter Klasow was another one of the really transformative people in my life, guys. It's, this was as fluent of a musician as you can humanly get. Peter was a great pianist, a great composer, a great thinker, a marvelous man. And this was one of the most rich and beautiful parts of my two years in Cape Town playing in that orchestra. And, and so I asked him to write a piece for me as if I had any flippin' idea what that meant, right? You know, write a piece for me meant that's kind of like the guys who shaved in my dorm and Keiko Abe, who had had millions of people writing pieces for her when I went to study with her. And so he wrote a couple of really wonderful pieces for me. And my sort of, I was just, that, that really hooked me on working with a composer. To, to watch a piece of music come to life, to have a hand in its writing and its creation and its shaping I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget the night of the world premiere of the Klatso Marimba Concerto in front of my orchestra in Cape Town. And talk about being hooked. I was really hooked at that point with not just 
I had never considered seriously being a marimba player as a profession. <laughs> I was a percussion who's, who played way too much marimba and all these other sorts of things, but be a marimba player. I, w I remember walking off stage after the class of marimba concerto that night thinking, oh my God, I love every single thing about that. Mm -hmm. And then I was really fortunate, a kind of big fish in a small pond. All these people invited me to play on their recital series throughout South Africa. And I got to play with a number of the orchestras and all these other great opportunities happened. I got to give some master classes and try my hand at teaching of people other than just full-time students. So, and all this is happening to me when I'm a kid. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 20, 21 years old at that point. And, and then I made, a, I made my first record. And, and that was, there was a small record company in Cape Town we recorded the Classical so Marimba Concerto, a very beautiful piece of a man named Jacques de Vosmalan called Mobile Structures that I was so fond of. A piece that, besides the Marimba Concerto, a piece that Peter Klatso had written for me called Figures in the Landscape with Flute and Marimba. And I think Suyoshi Mirage, who I put on that record too. Mm -hmm. and, and that record began to sell in Europe a little bit. It was on an LP. And um, I was on the phone with Tim Adams the other day, and his wife comes out with a copy of my old LP and her son in it. I said, uh -oh. you need to put that in a dumpster before anybody <laughs> figures out how to play it and listens to that, right? <laughs> but that, that's where it all happened. And then our sort of migration into Europe happened just because I had a, I had a date in Scandinavia to go play the Klatso Marimba Concern Scandinavia that got canceled because I was residing in South Africa. And there was an artistic embargo against everything South African during the apartheid time. Mm. And, um, you know, Peter Klatso, as we're, we had sort of said before we started, we wouldn't talk about what's going on in the world right now. But mm. uh, Peter Klatso was a person of fair colored skin on exactly the right side of a very hard issue when it took a lot of courage and a lot of danger to believe and behave as Peter Klatso did during his entire life as a very admirable man who was on the right side of a very complicated issue. And somebody told me I couldn't play his marimba concerto in Scandinavia because he had a South African passport. This was a man who had been fighting every single day and sometimes doing dangerous things to be on the right side of fixing that problem, not sitting on their very comfortable sofa pointing fingers. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's kind of how the marimba began to take over into that. But Josh, again, the same sort of thing of happenstance. If I had started my marimba career in Europe and somebody had told me about a job in a good German radio orchestra and I would have been lucky enough to win a timpani audition, I'd have very happily spent the rest of my life playing timpani in a German orchestra. And so Jesse Levine, who you guys may remember or may not remember, my old viola colleague uh, who passed away of cancer in ADL, Jesse said, Bob, do you know how to make God laugh? So, I don't know, Jess. How do you make God laugh? I said, make plans. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> it, and, and, and my career has been a, 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 a just an illustration of that, Josh. I mean, the, the, so, so few of these things were planned. They happened. I think the difference is that I'd love to tell to young people, though, is make positive. Luck will bring you places sometimes, sometimes not. But be sure you've got your goods ready to go. And for both of you, that was your case with So. 
I mean, I remember, and I'm not going to embarrass both of you to tell everybody I remember when you were all little kids, right? But I remember being in the back room, Josh, when you were getting ready to do your first stint subbing with soap. Mm-hmm. And uh, all right, Bob, you got to help me through all this repertoire. I got to learn this crazy stack of music, and I'm going to go sub with soap for a little while, blah, 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 blah. And Eric as well. And those are just opportunities that had you not had your bag of goods in its best shape, you could have all the luck you want and not be able to capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. And, and Josh, the, the other thing and last thing, and I'll stop with the whole story. It's just who you are is something that you guys have made a huge part of your success. I mean, the fact that the four of you guys are wonderful people and that that's not why you're famous, but that certainly has played into it. And, and uh, what, what's, what's your sentence? My kids tell me all the time, Josh, just, be a good hang and play well oh, yeah, or what good hang, yeah. Yeah, but put put into the simplest of sort of dude terms there is ton there is a ton of wisdom behind that and and now once upon a time guys when i'm talking about all these old stories there were three marimba players here and two setup players there and one guy there and sort of a percussion group here and now phenomenal players are hanging on trees i mean <laughs> that's real that is that, really true the, the, the phenomenal players are hanging on trees. Thusly, the be a good guy and be decent to be able to work with plays into this more than it ever has. Mm-hmm. Because we, uh, we just don't have to deal with guys who are jerks. There are just too many people out there who play great who aren't. <laughs> We've always tried to sort of prioritize that in our teaching with students. And at SOCI, too, it's like we see students only for two weeks. And so what do you want them to leave with? And we, I don't think there's been one soci student in the last 12 years 11 years that i've ever fixed their grip because i'm like that's not right now i think what i need to i've do noticed is, that josh i wanted to talk to you i, I, I could have fixed victor cachese's grip but i decided not to bob that was they your, all that told was, me it was beach who had to fix their grip problem. i mean i didn't want to i didn't want to bring it up you but know i think we try to leave them with a little bit of a different worldview of like the, you know listen the worldview is something that you're going to have that your whole life your your grip is going to be changed over the course of your life and i and and um, Eric, unless you have a pressing question, um, I want to. I was wondering if to sort of jump a little bit forward. You've connected dots for me and Eric and students who may have watched the Michael Rosen podcast. Your dot between him and you. Um, we now got you to Europe, but one of the things that we talked about with Larry Snyder was that one of the the odd sort of things that we overlap on is Spirit Festival with Lamentations was premiered in the United States in Gazetta Hall, where I played my junior and senior recitals. Um, this was way before I was there, not way before, but well before I was at the university of Akron. Um, and I feel like this is sort of like in terms of your impact on chamber music and where that imprinted on us and where commissioning new music also was the other imprint on us. Cause that's been a big mission of so's is to bring new work into the world and play it at a crazy high level. If you can, you know, in spirit festival, but also premiering pieces is a messy process it's not as it's it's you know you walk out and you're like oh man i can't wait till they hear the 15th version of that one you know um can you talk a little bit about that process of bringing spirit festival into the or just uh, your approach to commissioning and then how that what you know the introduction of your you in the united states through the university of akron and how that whole thing worked if you wouldn't mind sure. um do you want me to start with when larry snyder introduced cecile to dairy queen 
No, well, we don't. That. You could start there, but Bob Bob said you're welcome to start. Or, or sorry, Larry said you're welcome to start there as long as you return all of the Omglocken that say U of A on them. That's what that's that's the only thing he he asked he asked. So from knowing that, Bob, you're welcome to start wherever you'd like. <laughs> the Spirit Festival. Well, first of all, there are three composers of all the composers that I've had the privilege of working with that will always kind of travel with me. And that is James, Peter Colazzo, and Alejandro Vignal. And I've had the chance to work with so many fine composers that many of them have written me really wonderful musics that I've loved. But those guys are people that I had to be, had the privilege of being a repeat customer with. You know, I think that's something that you guys have experienced too with Lansky and with a few other people. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to do a first performance of a piece. It's also another thing to do a second commission with somebody, of somebody that's going to create a piece for you that you already have a working relationship. Anyway, the, the circuit of contemporary music festivals is rather small and lots of the performers, you see the same people and the same composers and whatever. It's just in a different city, different time. And I had admired, admired James and his music and who hadn't at that point. And I had been wanting to get him to write a marimba piece for me. And he was moderately interested in the first sort of approaches. And then I remember one conversation that turned to, you know, I'm writing mostly microtonal music now. And so if you really do want a piece from me, if you would get a microtonal marimba, okay, and I'm sitting here trying to remember, trying to figure out what a microtonal marimba would even look like, right? And then then I think I would probably say yes. And so, of course, Cecile, who's the only intelligent person in my marriage, is standing next to me. And I said, yeah, I tell you what, I'll do that. And so we walk away from that conversation and she says, that was adorable. So... <laughs> Um, how exactly are we going to get a microtonal marimba? And B, not to sound stupid, what is a microtonal marimba? And who are we going to get to do this that you just now have us in a, a, a commitment with a famous composer to do? And we took the idea to the Adams factory, Josh, and Andre said, yeah, I'll, do, I'll make that for you. And so in came the instrument. The instrument was fascinating beyond belief to learn to play. And um, and the first time we actually took it out and made it come to life was in the States with Larry. Larry may remember this better than I do of how that actually ended up being the place we took it first. I I played that piece so many times in so many different places. One of I the don't fa- I don't know. There's he did mention he he didn't go deep deep into it, but he mentioned that like the the gentleman a guy named Jack Butcher. Is a guy that lives in lives in Akron, and he's sort of an instrument builder, and he builds microtonal instruments all the time. Like, is always tinkering and making stuff. And he mentioned that, like, I think you were like, "Yeah, we have to get these microtonal bells and stuff." And like, it's who's going to do that? And then Larry, Larry was like, "Well, Jack can do that." And I, well, I, I half wonder if that's like the vibraphone extension, and that's right, and the Glockenspiel. Yeah. That's that's I didn't remember that part. Yep. But if, it may just be that simple that there was – again, it's like those moments, those sliding door moments. It's like the fact that if Jack Butcher didn't live in Akron, Larry may not have ever said that, which means you never would have come, which possibly means I never would have met you, which means I wouldn't have met Eric and we wouldn't be having this conversation. So like <laughs> – And what about the beard? I mean what would have happened with the beard? That's I mean, another story <laughs> and uh, I only listened to Stephanie on that front. So um, anyway, we're, we are at, you're at the University of Akron now with Spirit Festival. And we, we – James came. Um, and sort of supervised these crazy rehearsals and the 63 bazillion hours with a prepared piano figuring out from, okay, here's what I think it should be to here's how you actually prepare that piano to do that. 
um, I remember playing the first performance with James sitting in the middle conducting. There were, there were three sections in that 30 minute piece that we just couldn't get to work. Uh, I wonder why the rhythms were really simple and the textures were really transparent, right? Um, and so James said, Paul, I think it might be an idea if I beat time here, huh? which was, <laughs> I, I'd really prefer, the translated in English was, I'd prefer not to see my piece actually fall apart and stop in the concert. So I'll sit on the little drum throne in the middle of the square. No one will even know I'm there in the first place. And so we did that, and we took it, Josh, if I remember correctly, to a few different cities with those students from Akron. And, and that sounds right. played it in a few different places. Okay, and if you want your very best Larry Snyder anecdote, okay, here, okay, this is before your phone and GPS and everything else. This is, swear to the heavens, a true story. Cecile can vouch for this. His instructions for us to get to Northwestern, where we played it, was you just go to Chicago and you'll see it's just right there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So that's what it was like to study snare drum with him as well. Just, just in case you're wondering for the, for the whole percussion world, just so you know, in case you ever have a gig at Northwestern, that's not how you get from Akron, Ohio. (laughs) My favorite, my favorite thing Larry ever said to me was that my snare drum roll sounded like two skeletons dancing on a tin roof. Like, and then you just turned around and I was like, Oh, I know what that is. Like, like he, he has a very specific recipe for telling a student how to And that'll help me fix it, too. Thank you very much. That really kind of did it. And then that piece then really began to come to life, Josh, as we sort of, I think the whole tour of America with Larry's guys sort of proved to me and all the percussion world that this, this was doable. I mean, this is kind of the Silvio Gualda got the score to Safa um, I don't know, let's try kind of thing. And now, you know, now college kids do it, right? right? But with Spirit Festival, I wasn't so sure, to tell you the honest truth, brother, that that was going to work. That was the most complex piece of music that I had ever seen. That was by far the hardest marimba playing I had ever encountered. And there wasn't eight minutes of it like Mirage or something. It was a half hour's worth of music. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, oh, by the way, when you get to the end, you have this sliding up and down microtonal chorale you all sing. And don't worry, it only lasts for nine minutes. Okay, so it was just sort of, yeah, and what next, right? Once that happened, Josh, then I really took it back to the percussive Rotterdam guys who were sort of the first European version of so if you will you know the first time i'd taken a group of my students and tried to turn it into a professional percussion group and we really took a very deep dive into this piece and and i'm not so sure i've had many more rewarding experiences with a piece of music that i've commissioned than my time with the percussive rotterdam guys really bringing every bit of richness that is in that magnificent piece of music to life Mm. um and um, because of because of the climb the Himalayas part of that piece, you know, of the gear and the difficulty and the this and the, the it's just been played so little since. I've done it a few times myself after those first two or three tours. Um, somebody asked me in an interview, Josh, the other day, something no one ever asked me. What's the greatest concert you ever played in your life and do you remember it? I, was, I never even thought of such a thing. And... And I had to give an answer. And I think the answer that I gave was the Spirit Festival performance at Darmstadt hmm. of 
that was probably the most resonant moment where I felt something happened. And Josh, this was at the very beginning. You know, you guys all know me who studied with me in the world of chamber music and all these sorts of things. You have to know that my chamber music world is completely self-made. This was not something that was part of my student experience whatsoever. And I didn't go play in a professional percussion group. I started out my life either playing one five one behind an orchestra or playing solo marimba pieces by myself. The idea of a small formation of music is something that I came to love just as a student at CIM when the Guaneri String Quartet used to come there in the Christmas time and give their chamber music seminar. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's very funny because Arnold Steiner from the Guanary String Quartet is now my colleague at Curtis, and I've never had the guts to go up to him and tell him, you remember that kid who used to sit in the back of all the coaching sessions who you asked, you know, excuse me, sir, you're who exactly? You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm a percussion major here, mm-hmm. and I kind of come back early from my Christmas vacation so I can watch you guys coach the Debussy String Quartet. That was the first place I had seen chamber music and seen it done at a high level. But imagining it be part of my own music, musical vocabulary, mm-hmm. or then obviously later part of my teaching, it sort of began to evolve during my time in Rotterdam when I was just told, okay, well, you have to do the percussion group too. I thought, okay, well, then I'm going to pretty much have to figure out what that is. And, and so my, my language of how one plays chamber music and learning to play chamber music myself was really done on the fly. And I don't necessarily recommend that to people as the best way to that truth. And I think seven million hours of rehearsals of third construction in the studio at Yale is probably a better way to get to that path. But my own experience was very much self-made in the world of chamber music. And I adored it. it, it Josh, it kind of encapsulated everything that I loved about the orchestra and everything that I loved about solo marimba music, this was a nexus between those two things. Mm. And I and, and talk about these sort of epiphany moments. When I first started playing chamber music, kind of came through playing duos of marimba and violin or marimba and, and flute pieces and whatever, and then starting to co- coach the percussion group in, in Rotterdam, it was like, this is my thing. And so it's my timpani world and my solo marimba world that took me through there and I happened upon what ended up being the musical love of my life by accident. And, and I really learned so much of then how you teach this art form from the guys of you were sitting in front of me and, and yourselves, because we had a very strong percussion program going on with chamber music by the time I came from Rotterdam to come to teach in the States, but nothing like what YPG is now. Mm. And, and, and you guys probably have had the same experience when you guys first started teaching too. You always want at the end of a career, you want to call the guys who were with you in the first five years and go, if you came back now, I actually know how to do this. You know, that's, okay. that's, it, it makes me, I mean, I want to, I do have a question on that front and I will get to that, but I, I, you know, you, you, I want to sort of get to now, you mentioned now you're in the States now, you're at Yale and Peabody. And I think in terms of your, your pedagogy around chamber music, yes, there's marimba and there's timpani and, and I, all of that stuff, I don't want to say they're tangential, but I feel like you've always approached all of your teaching with the umbrella of chamber music. I remember you saying something like, you find, be a marimba soloist. If you're going to play, you, you do know an orchestra is a 90 piece chamber group exactly. and you have to be good exactly. at playing with people. If you're playing triangle on Mahler two, you have to, or a Mahler one, you can, you know, you have to, breathe still and play with, you know, it's the same thing. 
And I, I think um, at Yale and Peabody in particular, I feel like those are two places in the States where you sort of could plant your flag and be like, here's what I want to do with this. And now looking back, I think like if you if I just open a random YouTube video of anyone playing chamber music, the level's better now. And I th- I would say that that it's you know if you sort of looked at the six degrees of separation, like those folks have probably interfaced with us at SOCI at some point. Those students have then gone out and worked with their colleagues in their own universities. Like there's this weird butterfly effect. And I and for you, I'm curious if you can talk. I want to sort of bring it back now to Yale and Peabody and to Tony the Pony to sort of bring it home. Um, <laughs> I knew we'd get back to Tony. This you knew is good. it was there, Bob. Um, and Eric, uh, it may, I'm going to allow you only one more question because you've been so talkative. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I just ask before we go farther, do they treat you like this in rehearsals too, Beach? And if they do, you need to call me so I can <laughs> Because I don't think that Jason Truding is an icon. He's still just Jason to me, okay? So if these guys are picking on you 10 years later in your profession... You have, you get me in there, and I'm going to fight your corner. All right. Well, Josh, shame on you. Be nice to Eric Beach. There fine. you go. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm glad glad to know you're on Eric's side here. Um, you, I, when you mentioned that you would call your students and be from Rotterdam from years prior and say, uh, you know, I know how to do this. I also like I have those moments now where I feel like I would call you and be like, Bob, you know, I would never get into Yale now, right? Like, like, like we're, we're all on the one with that, correct? Like because I played. Hawk Reiner 1 and 2, number Etudes 1 and 2 in my audition. And I remember looking you in the face and you said, what do you have to prepare? And I said, well, I have Merlin. I have the steel drum solo by Roger Zahab. I have Scheherazade. And you were like, don't even want to hear that. And I was like, fantastic. And mm-hmm. and you said, and I said, and I have these two timpani Etudes because you said this book and I'm terrible at this and I just didn't want to waste your time. And you said, thank you. And you sat down and I played, boom, yep, boom, <laughs> yep, boom, yep. And, you know, I sat there and felt like a dummy and somehow I got in and I feel like you, you have a, um, you've mentioned Tony the Pony many times in my lessons of like, it's the simple things. If your rhythm's not good and if your sound isn't good, it doesn't matter. If you can't play Hawk Reiner one and two, you can't do anything else. And that has radiated, I think, in throughout our teaching. And I'm curious, um, just sort of like in all seriousness, the Tony and Pony, Tony the Pony approach I think is key. If I was on the outside, had to squint and say, there's one thing that Bob Van Syce jumps off of. It's that. Josh, I think, I think that this is the very core of my teaching is that, I mean, number one, I was raised a very old school. I grew up in, in the Podemski snare drum book and, and Hulk Reiner etudes and, you know, and, and playing scales and arpeggios until they were bleeding out of my ears. And I just, I encountered too many, guys early in my career that were better at saying the word Donatoni and they knew how many movements were in Playad and what Zanakis's middle name were than they actually played. And the new music world that really I felt like had so much to learn, Josh, from the orchestral guys, of orchestral guys who just plain and simple had super sussed out their hands and had really wrapped their ears around what a sound was. And I grew up bathed in this idea with Cloyd that a good sound is okay, a great sound is preferable, and an exquisite sound is what we're searching for. And and that to, to really try to 
make sure that each of how on earth are you ever going to play a third construction together, the four of you, which you do like nobody? How are you going to do that if you've got rhythmic realization or pulse control problems in your playing? You, you can be as smart as you like. You can be as good a hang as you like. You can be as intellectual as you like. It's just not going to flower unless you're, you're basically standing on real hands. And so, Josh, from yourself and Eric to, to everybody else's, this is the shock and sometimes the look of disappointment with people during their first two months at Yale of, I came to study with you because you're the Spirit Festival Zanakis guy, and why on earth am I playing a Sarone etude and Hulkreiner etudes? I mean, what is going on here? And for most people, it was because they they didn't have a sound yet formed in their ear. Their hand didn't know how to be in service of what was in the dream of their ear yet. And either we just ignored that and and then played Omar because it was going to be interesting, or or I get in and I fix it. And 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 so as a result, I for a new music guy, I'm about as old school, and you guys know that, as you can get. And Tony the Pony, that joke comes from Freer, huh? That's a, that's a, it's a joke of Tom Freer's. We just, we just turned it French, right? <laughs> Tony Le Pony. <laughs> that was in honor of Cecile. I was a... <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, my whole life is like an honor of it's, it's a longer question. Um, but every single bit of my marimba sound is is rooted in the way I learned to play timpani. And every student who I've ever taught to make a good sound on any resonating body, that was done in a room with a dozen Hawk Reiner etudes. Mm. And, and I really believe in old fashioned, real skills. And, and I think that it's always been fortunate enough to bear fruit. That's for sure. Now, sometimes I'm super lucky, Josh, because Sometimes, you know, I mean, I get fed so many marvelous students by so many wonderful undergraduate teachers, okay? So, you know, I'll take credit for some of the of the Eric Beaches of the world that at 18 years old, we were learning to read triplets together and, you know, what's bass clef. You know, that's fine. But part of these guys, some of these great people I've had the privilege of teaching, whether they're the Skidmores of the world or Sam Ums or any of these people, yourself coming from Larry and, and the list goes on and on. A lot of these people were fed to me at Yale, already terrific players. And so, you know, I'd love to puff my chest out with the David Skidmores of the world and pretend like I did that. But David Skidmore was a killer player thanks to his own work in Mike Bird before he ever showed up on my front door. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when, but I do notice when people lay down skills that are based in resonant bodies, so if somebody comes to me who's had either a very fine timpani training or played quite a bit of marimba or any sort of a guy who learned from any of the great French percussionists of how to play a tam-tam, people came from Peter Sadlo and all these things. Anybody who understands resonance and the empathy that playing percussion has to have with the instrument, that's going to... And, 
And the timpani is the world's greatest equalizer, as you guys both know from your training. Mm. You can't tell the timpani what to do. It's also <laughs> a microtonal instrument. Like that's the other thing nobody ever tells you in fifth grade when they're like, here's the timpani part to John Philip Sousa. You're like, this is a microtonal instrument. What's, what are, you, are you crazy? <laughs> sure, I'll tune a fifth. I barely even like brush my teeth at five. Fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> you feed a bad stroke to a 29-inch timpani, and it's going to tell you that was the wrong thing to do to it, and, 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 and that you can't inflict your will on it. You have to learn to seduce sound out of a timpani. But a marimba is no different. A pair of crash cymbals are no different, mm -hmm. and, and you know, whatever, whatever you want. So, yeah, a lot of it is grounded in the old jokes of Tony the Pony. Well, I have, I have a final question for Eric, and then I want to let him ask the final question of you. Um, I, as you were talking, Bob, there was, you, you, you asked earlier when we overlapped in school, um, and it was, for me it was 2005 and 2006, uh, uh, that, that year. Eric moved. He moved his marimba into the studio, and I was, I was playing Hawk Reiner. I can remember this clear as a bell. And Eric walked in. He sat by the timpani, and he just looked despondent. This was like his first week at, at, at Yale and, you sat, and he sat beside me and he said, and I was like, what's the matter? And you were like, I don't, I don't belong here. And I was like, what? And you were like, I don't think I belong here. And you were like, literally couldn't even like open your stick bag. And I said, well, if they let me in here, you certainly belong here. And I don't know if that helped at all, but like, um, you know, it's, it is these, there are moments when you are sort of thrown into the the the, uh, the crucible, and and you you weren't told that it was the crucible necessarily, and then you get in and you realize like, oh no, like this is all for good, but oh no, I have to run and I've never run before, <laughs> you know, and that was the look that Eric had on his face, and I'm curious, um, Eric, what was your? I mean, how did? Why did you have that feeling, and then how did that change for you? How did how did you sort of solve that solution in your head, and how did your studies, not just with Bob, but for me, I think of Joan Panetti at Yale as like somebody who also like radically dislodged some worldviews in my head about the way to look at music in the world. Um, for you, what what was that experience like for you that then sort of turned your your eyes and your sort of emotions in the in a healthy direction as far as how to how to approach Yale. Well, um, I, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about my experiences both at Peabody and at Yale and how, Bob, I love you as a teacher, but in so many ways, it was beyond lessons. It was the studio environments in those places that really pushed me to become a good player. You know, it was the idea that you're listening to all these incredibly talented people who are also like working really, really hard so, you know, if they're already ahead of you and they're running as fast as they can, you kind of feel like, I don't, I mean, even if I run as fast as I can, I don't know if I can, I'm never going to catch up with them, much less keep pace. Um, but I do think that we have to be exposed to environments like that at points in our lives to, to push ourselves. Um, you know, uh, with my wife, I've gotten into running marathons in the, in the last few years. And, and when people do sports, they're really used to thinking about this as like um, a mental game, much more than a physical process, right? That, that uh, you train and you train and you train. And yes, your training is, is important. It's the only way that you can achieve any amount of success. But um, at a certain point, your training drops away and you have to have uh, a way of mentally approaching the thing that you're trying to do. And um, I think that the environments at Peabody and Yale 
were as much about creating that mental space of how to convince yourself that you could do something as a player. Um, and it's finally funny to hear you say that, Josh, because I do remember struggling in my first year at Yale. I, I feel like as a student, Bob, I studied with you for six years, and there were multiple times that I went through really tough experiences. Um, and every time I would come out on the other side of it, a stronger player, a more confident player. Uh, and I very clearly remember leaving Yale and and not knowing that I, I couldn't do everything great in the world, but being very confident in myself. Um, and actually, this sort of brings me to the other big question that I wanted to have ready for this podcast was, um, I wish I could remember the lesson and I wish I could remember the context. I just remember being in a lesson with you, Bob, and having you say, we were talking about uh, classical music audiences shrinking. And you said something along the lines of, um, well, maybe it's possible that the performances just aren't that compelling. And it was maybe the first time in my life that somebody framed what I was doing, not as me trying to get better to be like the best of something in the field, but that I had a responsibility to be good for that field to be more successful in and of itself. That like my responsibility is not just to get a job as a percussionist, but to make the playing of percussion compelling for an audience member, not just for myself, but for every other concert they're ever going to go to, you know? Um, and it like, it's really struck me and it really uh, put an, a level of responsibility on my shoulders, I think. So I wanted to ask you, what do you see? What, how, how do you see the responsibilities that your students are taking on through their studies with you? Um, Eric, you bring up just like the, the core of the points that I think about day and night when I'm teaching people. Um, number one, if I could just backtrack just a tiny bit. I believe so deeply in that title of Hillary's book, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. Every one of you learned as much from your colleagues in the studio at school as you learned from me in lessons. That's abs And I tell you that when I'm recruiting students, okay? And somebody says, you know, I've gotten into these five other schools besides Yale. Why should I come to Yale? And well, I always used to tell them, you bring up the name. Well, number one, nobody has Joan Panetti. Okay, so nobody can compete against that. And, and number two, you're going to learn more from the other five people in this studio than you're going to learn from me. And they always think that's a really pretty phrase that Bob thought up and it's, you know, really nice in the recruiting. Eric, it's just the truth. I mean, it's you live in this submarine with five other people 24-7 for two or three years. And you're going to learn more from each other in those rehearsals than you're going to learn in that two hour coaching from me. That is the result of all those other sort of things. So number one, anybody who teaches always remember students are not trophies, they're humans. Okay. And so when people, you know, run down this laundry list of the, the Yale people who've been fortunate enough to get work and, you know, they throw roses at me and all this stuff. I always tell them stuff that that's cute. And, but, I'm a very small part of all of those successes, okay? If you really want to throw the roses in the right direction, we need to get about 20 people in the room here, and, and they can all take their their part of the success in making a Josh Quillen and making an Eric Beach, okay? So, number one, it takes a village to raise a child. Second of all, cynicism is something that I detest, as you guys know. I don't dislike cynicism. I hate it. 
And I, I hold David Letterman responsible for screwing up half of our society. This guy took humor of what used to be jokes and humor and turned smart-ass one-liner cynical, cynical things into the replacement for humor. And even though it had no malintention behind it, that and 14,000 other things invaded our society. And we're cynical and smart-ass about so many things but so much of the life experience is precious and holy. And above all, things that are precious and holy is this incredible 400-year canon of music that the three of us have, a, have the privilege to be part of. And it's good enough, just as you guys, I, you're the last two people in the world, I have to tell you how much I detest that sentence. Something, it's good enough. No, it's right is good enough. Anything else is a compromise. And why? Because can you sit down with a piece of paper and write what Paul Lansky did with threads? I can't. <laughs> can you sit down and make the magic happen that is inside of the greatest of James's pieces, et cetera, et cetera? I can't. So I think that the responsibility that we have to have back to composers to bring their music and people who are cynical about, oh, oh yeah, what, what are we playing tonight at the beginning of a concert? I don't think there's anything vaguely funny about that. And I played, when I played, I was every time telling myself, maybe that's the last time you play, leave it all there. And I just, I just believe so deeply in this beautiful music that we have the privilege of playing. And and the responsibility, you know, James Wood, when I played Spirit Festivals, I was his messenger. He said, listen, I spent 2,000 hours of my life coming up with this magical dream. Bob, it's you and these other four guys' responsibility to bring it to life in front of these 500 people. <laughs> okay. And so I, I think that the main thing I'd love to say to back to any of that, Eric, is have fun I love jokes, as you know. I love to laugh. I love to make fun of myself. I love to giggle between all of you. But I don't find cynicism funny. And I think that it's something to stay away from as deeply as you possibly can in the pursuit of excellence. And guys, you know what I say to you as students all the time. If you walk off stage from a concert and people say, gee, Mr. Valentine, that was the best playing of the marimba I ever heard in my whole life. That means, number one, it wasn't true. And number two, you got it wrong that night. If you get off stage and somebody says to you, gee, Mr. Valentine, I heard a million people play Time for Marimba. That was the first time I really understood it. And I loved that piece. That was your job. And if, if we can somehow get people to erase the Michael Jordanization of classical music, the hero worship of what it is. And, and we're going through it so strongly with, I'll leave the names out so I don't embarrass these couple of young people, but I have one or two of the greatest students I've ever taught in my life kind of coming out of school right now. And, and everybody's drooling all over their face when they're listening to them play. But it's the last thing that those people want to hear is, oh, my God, you play so great. Oh, my God, isn't, isn't that John Cage piece exquisitely beautiful? And it made me feel something I didn't in the rest of my day. That's it. 
And so I think priorities, and you know what's the problem, Eric, that worries me so much? When you talk about things that are this deep and this sincere and this real, people are like, oh God, is he gonna get preachy? And that we're too cynical to even have a conversation about the whole reason to be a classical musician? This isn't part of it or a good part of it. This is the whole thing. As a performer in the funny chain of creator to absorber of the sound, you're the thing in the middle. And, and to not allow cynicism to taint any part of that, maybe it is preachy and maybe I've got too much gray hair. I don't care. It's very real. It's very real. Well, you, I, Eric, that was an amazing question. And I feel like what it does is like you, you advocacy is the, I mean, it's advocacy is a big word right now in the world and for, and advocacy can apply to anything, you know, but when it like to wall this like advocacy as it pertains to um, repertoire you're passionate about um, snare drum solos, you want to teach students, you would like whatever um, sharpen your ax and make sure that you've polished that thing before you put it in front of people, because that's the best way to advocate for the thing you believe in is to do it, to exhaust all of your own um, possibilities before you put it on someone else. And, and people, this is the thing, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the most impressive high level performance. What people want to see is an incredible amount of genuineness. Like they, people can read through the BS and tell whether or not someone cares about what they're doing. And, you know, just it, that sort of approach of advocacy has seeped into the way so so does things. Not every night we play on stage, and Bob, I'm not going to speak for you, but I imagine it, not every night when you walk on stage, you walk off. You're it's not every night you're just like, wow, that was amazing. Some nights you're like, uh oh, you know, um, you know, you feel like you owe some people some money, and and but it's but what I, what I feel like I can say is I've never been on stage and not been genuine. I've never bullshitted anybody on stage and Eric and Jason and Adam, like any, the minute any one of us starts to do that, I'm done. Like the, the, that's too stressful a job anyway. Like, you know, so like I would rather just be genuine. And I feel like that sort of hit the nail on the head. Um, I would- and Josh, if, I, if I can jump in one last thing Please. and that is from the guys in my, my age group and Mickey's age group and all the people who you talk to Larry size and whatever, I find it a very rich time. I mean, Eric, you can't imagine what it does to me emotionally to watch you guys come into my own class and give that master class on the Mackie and watch my own young kids and remember the first day I met Jason Truding in upstate New York and the first time I met you when you were a kid in Baltimore and watch the beauty of the teaching, the sincerity of the teaching, the beauty of the musicianship, the beauty of the interaction from human to human. And I, I watch Svet play and I watch GA play and I watch Jisoo play and I listen to concerts of, of Seaborn when we go out. I, I just feel like we leave my profession as I'm about to hand the baton off at a certain point in my career to really high quality people doing really high quality work with their head really together. And, and I, I, I still got a little tiny bit of teaching in me that I want to do, and I'm not ready to hit the door yet. But I can tell you that if I did have to stop teaching boys tomorrow, I could totally leave my profession in good hands. And it doesn't worry me one, sing, one single bit. And it's hard from your vantage point to see what it is, because only when you get to a certain place on a mountain do you get longer views. But guys, you are what Amadinda was. 
You know, Jason's every bit as amazing as Bob Becker or Zoltan Ratz. I mean, we can go on and on and on. And we got people playing the marimba at a level that I didn't think I would see ever in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had no idea. And I mean, you guys can imagine the, the people I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen this live and in person, you have to because it's playing I, the marimba. I, listen, we've, we've stood next to Jihei while she plays, and it's like standing next to a jet engine. And you're just being <laughs> like, I, I just, I got to hang on here. Like, that's all I got to do. <laughs> Josh, it's nuts. And with these two baby young guys who are just getting out with Sam Um and with, with Jisoo Jung, it, I don't even know what to say. You know, and this, this is just, I've heard Jisoo play at levels just, I didn't think in my lifetime I'd hear anybody play the marimba at that level. And, and I want to know, guys, what's waiting for us 10 years from now? <laughs> and, and it is so exciting. I think the work that all of your generation of guys have done is so fantastic. And if I could just sort of do sonata form, maybe even last thing in the, in the repeat here. I love that I see you all root for each other. That's so healthy. And, and you know, I think that this is why your generation of guys are in the street right now and all these other sorts of things. That you're a generation, Josh, where you, you and Eric go to a Third Coast concert who is your straight-up day-to-day competitor in your profession and cheer at the end, at the end of everything. And, guys, that may seem normal to you, and if that is the case, I'm more proud of that than anything I taught. That, that we're no longer in this bullshit that was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Who's the best? Who's the fastest? Whose marimba mallets have the least contact sound? Whose low C rings the longest? Whose resonator is the big? You know, all this garbage that, that took our eye off the ball for so long. To see this younger generation of guys in their 30s to their 40s and the guys in their 20s root for each other is so healthy. And and I really hope you continue to instill it in young people long after I'm sitting drinking a pina colada on a flipping beach with Cecile. (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 I, and I don't give a damn where the bass drum is at at school. <laughs> well, I will let you get back to Cecile speaking of pina coladas, Bob. I, I, I think what just um, – I think the future, the next 10 years, um, those people are watching this right now. And I want I, – I hope that they take this as not – and only as data to toss in their bag. This is not, not information that is a must-have and a must-use or X, Y, and Z won't happen. Put it in there. Use it. Or don't, but um, I think I, I just want people the next ten years to sort of know from whence they came, you know. And um, and I, I appreciate you taking the time today, Bob, to sort of help me connect some dots. And Eric, um, I you know just you know damn well I love you with all of my heart and would take a bullet for you. So if I'm not making fun of you, you know, then there's a problem. So yeah, the, the, maybe then, Beach. That's when you have to worry if yeah. he, if yeah. he's not razzing you, then something bad's about to happen. Well, Eric, Eric, I'll give you the final word here, but Bob, thank you so much for your time. Josh, a huge hug to you. Okay, it's so nice to spend an hour and a half together. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. Uh, really, our, our students are going to appreciate it. And, uh, you and know. I, good, good going with the, the courage of even under these situations, 
don't just say SOCI doesn't happen. You know, this is too important to too many people's lives from too many corners of the earth. And yeah, we're stuck on this silly little Zoom stuff. But I can tell you the silly little Zoom stuff is 17 million times better than not. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, that, yeah, one of my one of my colleagues at Peabody, when this first started and we were talking about this, had a great sentence that that an old adage of in life, you don't know what cards you're going to get dealt. The, 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 the art of life is how you play those cards that you get dealt. And here life is dealing us a pretty hard situation here. I mean, anybody who doesn't think that this is really one of the biggest challenges that we've seen in a century, they're just blind. And this is an enormous challenge that's going on. Any way we can all help each other and encourage young people to keep believing that there will be a time in the not too distant future where we're all on stage again, people are sitting in that audience, listening to concerts, having the same emotional experience that we've always had. And it is a great example, Eric, don't you think, of the, you don't know what you got till it's gone, you know? And, And here, we all are itching for the stage and that interaction. And I think, folks, for everybody who's listening of the young people who are thinking, oh, my God, everything that I was hoping to do in my life may be out the window. People are going to come back so hungry for the concert hall, having been denied it for this period of time. Well, that I- it's going to grow back richer than, than, than it was before. I mean, just when we were talking about this philosophy of, of teaching, um, the Sister Greta Kent or John Cage rules came to mind. And, and there's the one that says the only rule is work. Uh, and it says uh, basically, you know, the the people who do the work all the time are the ones who catch on to things. And I was kind of thinking, like, in some ways, there is an ethos of that in your studios that um, you have to love the work. And that actually, once you love the work, and you're willing to work that hard, you will catch on to things. And and actually, if you take that ethos into this moment, then you can constantly find things that you know you still need to work on. We all know the scores that we need to have studied. We all know the practice pad time we need to be putting in. We all know there's like 5,000 ways that we can still work. And, um, and yes, when we get back to the concert hall, of course we're going to love that. But... Um, now is the time that it reminds you to go back on those core values of like, if I enjoy this work, I enjoy it now, even when I can't do it the way I normally do. It's, it's the absolute truth. And, and those kinds of thoughts give people courage, huh? And, and I think there's, if there's anything we all need right now, it's just a nice, hefty dose of courage. We're up against multiple gigantic problems turning at the same time. If everybody just has courage we'll get through this so guys thanks a million for a moment together it was awesome thank you yes. very much take care tell, thank you tell Bob. The family we said okay, hey we'll talk well. to you soon bye big giant hug take care <laughs> all right bye-bye <laughs> bye-bye okay i hope you enjoyed that conversation this podcast is brought to you by liquid drum liquid drum down in waco texas former yale alum todd Meehan. Uh, l-i-q-u-i-d-r-u-m dot com uh, hilarious percussion videos great content funny merch check them out uh, also, DunleavyPans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I tune, or excuse me, that I play on and teach on. And I haven't regretted a minute with Kyle since I met him 15 years ago, and neither will you. All right, hope you're all doing well. Talk to you soon. 
Take care.